Happy New Year, everybody. We're going to go to our fifth podcast this year with a really incredible guy, Dylan Jones, who's the editor-in-chief of British GQ. Contrary to what he says when he starts, we start the podcast, he's also the chair of Men's London Fashion Week, and he's often credited for being part of the integral success to the shows. He's also got an OBE from the Queen. He's a very established writer. He's done several books. So we talked to him about many different things. It's quite a humorous conversation because Charlene knows him very, very well. But I first met Dylan when I was at The Face as a fashion editor and he was the editor-in-chief of Arena, an English Arena magazine. We discuss everything from the sounds of his youth, his perspective on fashion and history, how writing can be a force for good. He started his career at ID magazine in 1983 and has just gone on from strength to strength. Um, and he's just—he's a remarkable guy, and he's got the most fantastic sense of humour. So please do listen, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Okay, Happy New Year, everybody. So we started this My Mission is podcast, Charlotte and I doing this together and just phoning up, I guess, really our mates and just having a chat, a wee chat for 20 minutes. And this is primarily our audience is American, so... I think it'd be great if you can just tell us what you do currently, um, where, <laughs> if, if anything, um, and how you know Charlene. Um, I'm I'm one of London's pr- uh, premier drug dealers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we're going to get arrested. We're going to get a tug on this. I am uh, I am the editor of GQ in London. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I recently celebrated uh, twenty years. Uh, and I was there. I was there yeah. to applaud him. She was uh, Charlene. Very kindly came initially. I mean, it was meant to be a, a surprise dinner, and then I mm-hmm. found out about it and tried to cancel it. Um, oh wow! Uh, in all seriousness, it felt like a gold watch moment, and I didn't, <laughs> didn't particularly want to celebrate it. Uh, but it, it kind of made it was very difficult to cancel it. And actually, my wife said, "You know what? This is amazing. Throw yourself into it, and you'll, you'll mm-hmm. enjoy it." And actually, I did. And some people made some very nice, funny speeches. So yeah, it was nice. It was great. It was but, a great uh, night. It was a great night, and even Dylan got emotional. I did hear a little crack in his voice. I did not, and I did. That's not he true. So dead. I was like, I even said to him, I went, Dylan. That was, you got a bit emotional there. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. It's only taken 30 odd years for me to see you get emotional. But yeah, it was, it was such a good night, Dylan. I can't believe that you even for one second, you know, the thing is as well, there's not many people in any, you know, big, big job that last longer than five years. You know, you've been at GQ20. You know, you've held editor of Arena. You've been at The Face. You've been, I mean, your CV is phenomenal. Without yes, yes. Well, very kind, kind of you to say so. And we actually, do you know, we um, we were talking about you. I was saying, you know, when I used to see Dylan, I used to, I used to feel so intimidated by you because you, when I'd come from New York working at W, and everyone works in these little kind of rabbit hutches and uh, arena, and the face there was the white glass office that I would just see you sitting in there. And just looking very serious. Yeah, I'm very honoured that you've agreed to do this. But I've grown up now and I don't feel so intimidated. Exactly. Quite right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've I've always been really intimidated by him. (laughs) I first met Charlene, I mean, back in the day with Ashley, which, I don't know, 25 years, 30 years, long time. Probably 30 years ago. Yeah, it's 30, Um, Dylan. Yeah, probably. Yeah. 
But the world's changed. I mean, uh, I honestly, in all seriousness, if the world hadn't changed, if our industry hadn't have changed, I don't think I'd be doing the job uh, that I'm doing now because mm. I, I would have got bored and moved off. Yes. But um, it's so different. I mean, 20 yeah. years ago, it was an incredibly competitive marketplace. We were number one in a market of 15. And now we're not, I mean, in some respects, we're number one in a market of two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not just a magazine. It's it's a website. It's, yeah. it's dozens of social feeds. It's a podcast. It's live events. It's the GQ Man of the Year Awards. It's this one. It's that one. And actually, it's incredibly exciting because yes. you had to expand your bandwidth. You are embroiled in many, many different disciplines. The job, all our jobs are growing. And also, there's a little, little, little person on your shoulder whispering in your ear saying, it might not work. Yes. Nobody knows the future. Nobody knows the way that our industries are developing or where they're going to end up, where they're going to be in five years' time. Even forecasters, even people who are paid to know what's going on have no idea. Yeah, I love that you launched GQ Hype. How did that come about? That sounds really cool to do a newsletter. Um, We needed to get our numbers up. We needed to get our loyals up. I mean, our website is fantastically successful. It's seen by gazillions of people. But Mm -hmm. one of the important numbers is loyals. And that's one one of the things we needed to buy. So um, to build, sorry. So we launched a free-to-air weekly magazine. uh, And it's really simple. So instead of going from page one to page uh, 310 or 240, you go from Monday morning at 7 a.m. to Sunday night at 10 Uh, p.m. And you feel, I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah, um, but it's great fun and it's it's a bit like being back on a paper because right. on the one hand you're creating or trying to create this beautiful sort of leisurely incredibly complex magazine full of amazing pictures and incredible journalism but on the other side you're you're working with a relatively small team to produce a, a highly reactive website uh, and both and both of which have to punch above their weight what would you do if you weren't doing this? Because I looked at, we obviously did some research on you and I followed the same traje- trajectory as you. I went to Chelsea School of Art, did a foundation, then I went to St. Martin's. Did you indeed? I did not yes. know that. I've... I did not know that about you either. And yeah, I went you're to... about 300 years younger than I am. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not at all. But I love Chelsea. I studied graphics and art there and then went into fashion for whatever reason and then did the fashion journalism at St. Martin's and the first term I hated I wanted to leave and I tried to go to Southampton Row to get onto the fine art course and I couldn't because it was packed. I have to say I've just been uh, I've got a book published next month about Wichita Lineman but the next yes we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about that the next book I'm just just finishing now. I've, I've done a big oral history of of uh, the New Romantic period, which involves me going back and talking to a lot of people I hadn't seen for forty years. I mean, some of those people are good friends of mine, mm. some I've never met before, and some I've literally not seen for forty years. But London at the end of the seventies. I mean, I moved to London in August nineteen seventy seven, and to Chelsea to the King's Road, and it was just those sort of three or four years were the most intoxicating period of my life. I mean, I just loved it because there was so much going on, the music, clubs. Uh, It's a cliche to talk about, but they were very heady, intoxicating times. Where did you move from? Obviously, where you you grew up from and moved to London. I actually weirdly moved from five minutes minutes away because at that time (laughs) I was living in in High Wycombe, um, opposite the train station. 
But um, my father was in the Air Force, so we lived, you know, every two years we'd move somewhere else. So right. uh, I lived in um, Malta, in Cyprus, briefly, oh, wow. in Italy, uh, in every, every county uh, in the UK, and then was gradually inching towards London because obviously, like every other sane person in the country, I was just desperate to be in London. All I wanted yeah. to be was in London. I had two ambitions when I was younger. I wanted to go to art school and I wanted to go to London. And other than that, rather pathetically, I didn't have any other ambition. That is it. I mean, it's really interesting. What was that? Why was that especially coming from like, you know, with your father being in the Air Force? What did what did your mum do? Uh, she had uh, dozens of jobs. She was in the in the war. She used to drive a government taxi. She uh, she used wow. to drive Churchill. She drove Laurel and Hardy. <gasps> Oh uh, to drive all the dignitaries that that were going to number ten. She was a nurse. She was a social worker. She was she was a WAF as well. She was in the air air force um, just after the war. So yeah, she did many things. Wow, and what an amazing so what was, But what was this? What was this thing that basically wanted that was dragging to London? Was it just pop culture in general, or was it was it London itself that you felt like you know like that was the the place to be where everything was happening, or did you feel that you wanted to go into fashion, or did you feel you wanted to go into journalism, or what was it? I think it's three things. I think it's two of the things you mentioned. It's the being consumed and obsessed with pop culture, wanting to move to the centre of that. Which even though there were lots lots of other hubs around. Uh, the UK, Liverpool, Glasgow, Sheffield, Hull, Dublin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was basically all about London. And the, and the third thing was, which I think is, which I think is applicable to so many people in our industry, your industries, all of these industries, is reinvention. You want to come yeah. somewhere where you can disappear and blossom as someone else, right, which I think is driven by teenage insecurity and, and that idea that we're not the people we need to be, we want to be. And I suppose we spend all our lives working our way around to the fact of being kind of happy with ourselves because you have to be because you can't be anyone else. Yeah, totally. I mean, it is, a, it is an amazing thing that you spend so much of your youth literally working and trying so hard to be so sort of nonchalant and rebellious and all those things. And it isn't till you get to the point you're older that you really, you're like, I actually don't care. You know, the, yes. the freedom that as you get older that you get when it's like, I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you do, don't, whatever, have an opinion, don't have an opinion on me. I like who I like and I, I will do what I want to do. And mm. it's so freeing, but it's so funny because you just don't think that you care when you're young, but you really do, which is extraordinary, especially since, you know, coming from that whole punk era of really not being a punk until probably now. Yeah, it's true. It, it really yeah. is true. And yet I have been and have spent my life being and continue to be completely obsessed with the minutiae of all of those worlds, which is about some of those worlds, which are a lot of it is about surface and is, a, is about messaging and about media. Mm. And, and, and I, I suppose the interest for me was twofold. You've got these glamorous very urban environments and sort of collections of people, people involved, the factory in New York, people involved in glam in the early 70s, all of these different worlds. And it's a mixture of an incredibly sort of shallow fashion sort of veneer coupled with incredibly complex articulate work, like the work of David Bowie or the Velvet Underground or 
whoever. I mean, yeah. and it's that kind of fascinating nucleus, that, that, that sort of mix of intoxicating highs, lows, shallows, depths. I mean, all of these things. It's, uh, and that, that remains the integral sort of good pop culture. Yeah. Where does your... I read recently, Dylan, that you're really obsessed with the book you're about to come out, Witch to Lie Man. Where does that come from? It comes from growing up in a household where the likes of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin Mm. were rarely off the turntable. I mean, in the mid-90s, easy listening sort of lounge was revived. And I think it was revived because everything else had already been revived and they hadn't done it. (laughs) I don't think people actually liked it, but it hadn't been done before. But I was the person who put their hand up and said, well, A, I actually like it, and I've actually got all these records. I've got Dean Martin, I've got Sergio Mendes, I've got acres of this stuff. And that was really probably to do with the fact that those are the records that my parents listened to. Yes. And when mm. Wichita Lineman was a song in that sort of genre, sort of pop country genre, that was an incredibly complex, labyrinthine, existential song and even though I wouldn't have been able to articulate it as a sort of eight or nine-year-old when I heard that record for for the first time it really resonated with me in the way that you know everyone has records that resonate with them and mine would later be I don't know David Bowie, Steely Dan, the Ramones, all of these but that was the first record that I thought this is different this is This takes me somewhere that I've never been before. Yeah, it's it's funny how I think you know I think as well music as well that you grew up with through your parents. It's like it's like remembering the smell of the perfume your mum wore when they used to get ready to go out when you were a kid, and you'd watch your parents getting ready to go to some fancy party or something, and the excitement and the music as well is like very much. I remember parties that my parents had, the music that was being played at them, and watching all the grown-ups kind of act in a certain way when you're a little kid and I, and I think really you hold that as a massive memory it's like a photograph in your brain of a time and a place like any music does but um yeah I mean so many people use that expression you know guilty pleasures which I absolutely hate I would like, that too. I don't believe in guilty pleasures I don't believe in like guilty pleasures either I'm like you either like it or you don't like it what is this guilty pleasure bullshit that everybody keeps talking about it I hate it <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that that you talk about a time and a place with your with your parents and hearing music. That I guess when you're young, you kind of hear it and you don't. You think I like this and wow, that's really standing out. But I don't really know how to articulate it. But at a point when you get older, that music comes back to you, and then you really do realise how great those songs are and and how you know the the musicians and people that played them and sung them is just phenomenal. Well, I um. I often think of it as a punk song, really. And I'll tell you why. It's because when I moved to London in the summer of 77, and I looked like a member of the Ramones. I had like skinny <laughs> dirty, greasy hair, plastic leather jacket. And I've I was been seeing the photographs you've been putting up. I've seen the <laughs> photographs you've put up on um, recently uh, on Instagram. So don't worry. I've got it visual here. <laughs> but I would, you know, I would spend all the... <laughs> All evening, I'd be going to the Hundred Club or the Red Cow or the Roxy, all of these different places to see ostensibly punk groups. But then I'd go back to the Ralph West Halls of Residence in uh, Albert Bridge Road. 
And I, yes, of course, I'd play the second side of Low, I'd play Iggy Pop, I'd play all of these records, but I would also play the records that you weren't allowed to like anymore. I would play The Hissing of Summer Lawns, I would play Zuma by Neil Young, I would play records that I still liked, I was still learning about music and, enjoy, and, and enjoying those things. And so even though we were all encouraged to sort of ditch our past, I, I did that reluctantly mm. because there was so much of that music that I enjoyed. And also, I suppose... Things like Wichita Lineman. Wichita Lineman actually might have been one of those records that I played when everyone had left my room because (laughs) you still have those insecurities as a 17-year-old and you think, this is a a song my parents liked. So that's already ingrained in you, that sort of guilty pleasure thing. But I agree with Charlene. It's it's bullshit. Like They're not guilty pleasures. They're great records. Yeah, I think it's that thing, though, that you think, oh, it's music that my parents like, therefore I shouldn't like it anyway. So I think that is basically all it is. I don't even think you're thinking it's rubbish or it's naff, but you're just thinking, my parents like it, I shouldn't like it because my parents like it because, you know, when you're 17, that's the way your mind works. I'm very, very sure that, you know, my daughter hears music that that she's heard through me and kind of goes, yeah, whatever, my mum likes that, therefore I will not like it. You know, I think that's why my daughter's obsessed with K-pop, because it's every Everything that her parents, you know, we don't know anything about it. And I think because we don't know anything about it, that's what she wants to like. Yeah, more attractive. There was a morning about two or three years ago when my younger daughter had reached the age where in her school, you didn't have to wear school uniform anymore. Um, so obviously, the, you know, she was getting up a lot earlier in the daytime to put some effort into her outfit. <laughs> And she came down, she came down to, the, to the bottom of the house and I was just about to let her out one morning about half past seven or what. And I looked at her and I said, you're not going to like this, but 30 years ago, probably to the day, I was wearing exactly what I was wearing. <laughs> she was wearing a black MA1 flying jacket, a white T-shirt, a Gucci logo belt. Um, hers was real, mine was fake. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, white toweling socks and a pair of black Lokes loafers. Toweling socks, love toweling socks. Went to went to school, and then I, uh, I I I found a picture. I think it was a picture that was actually in ID. And that night, I said, "Look," and she looked at it and said, "You're just being ridiculous." And she just <laughs> admit that this thing was happening because, in their eyes, quite rightly, they are inventing everything for the first time, and that's mm. what it should be. What was your wow. what was your best look, Dylan? In your opinion, like through all the years, what do you think <laughs> was your best look? Because you know, like in your head, you're like, I've, I had that look. That look was. I feel that was my best look. It's like those moments where you think mm, that was the one. What was yours? Ah, oh, the thing is, it changes because I mean, for for years, the the eighties were derided. And you couldn't say anything good about the 80s, which is one of the reasons I'm writing this book, because I think there needs to be a massive reevaluation of the 80s. But I remember probably 87, yeah, 87, um, uh, Oxblood Baswegians, Red Sox, uh, Skinny Chinos, Armand Bassey shirt, deep, deep, deep navy blue um, Jean Borgotier double-breasted jacket and I thought I looked wow. the bee's knees and of course <laughs> you know, and I looked yuppie I looked disgusting but um, it doesn't matter who cares you know it's all it's all bullshit because some things you look at something one day you look amazing and, mm. and the next day you think how on earth could I and often this is weeks later <laughs> yeah yeah it, it moves on fast <laughs> 
do you have all your do you have a lot of stuff from when you were young i mean does your do your daughters kind of look at your stuff and go dad can i have can i borrow that jacket or i kept everything for a while the only things i've, I've got my hard time with jeans mm-hmm. uh waist 28 inches because <gasps> i wish um they wow. were in the vna 80s exhibition i've got a logo belt i mean i've got a studded belt from about 1981 and i've still got a a vintage Vivian Westwood top from I think 1980, but I had a terrible accident. Well, um, I inadvertently sort of uh, brought havoc on my house when I was with a girl, um, <laughs> and she and we had a you know we were kind of breaking up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a bit of an overlap, I think, is the polite way of, of <laughs> saying it. And she, and she had keys to my flat. I was living behind the the Ritzy in Brixton, first, a first floor flat, housing association flat. And I'd been round at a friend's house, that Robin's house up in uh, Brixton. And I got back that night. It's about eighty four, maybe eighty three. And I walked in, and in my very small room bedroom which was not much bigger than the actual double bed i had a rail of clothes and my girlfriend had been there for three hours cutting everything up all <gasps> pieces and i there were like five bin bags just full of full of these you know and every label forever catherine hamnick crawler oh, Westwood. Oh, i mean yeah, yeah. you know hey ho it was it was a moment of um, I think there was too many movies out round about the eighties that were women cutting up men's clothes as well at that point as well. Really? There was probably quite a lot of influence there to certain <laughs> movies of the eighties. Yeah. Let's cut the clothes up because that will get them. That will get them where it hurts. Good God! <laughs> oh my goodness! Terrifying. Terrifying. So, who was when you eventually got when like when you started to like your first? What was your first big interview? The the first time you that you did an interview, you thought, okay, right now now I'm interviewing the kind of people and writing the kind of stuff that I really want to do. What was that moment? I took it took years. I mean, I was when I I joined ID in '83. It'd been going for like two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And almost immediately was sort of given the keys to the kingdom, you know, made editor, could literally go anywhere and interview anyone. Of course, I couldn't write. So you're growing up in public. I mean, Mm. I look back at a lot of the stuff I wrote in the early 80s and it's kind of crazy terrible. But it kind of I think it doesn't matter because it was very it was very sort of reflective of the time. I and I I say this to my daughter, who is uh, my younger daughter, who is dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And I found out last year that I'm dyslexic too. I mean, not as bad mm-hmm. as she is. And uh, this was, I mean, we both kind of like it because it's a massive connection between yes. us. And, and my uh, my point in, in saying this story is that I think writing is something, unless you're an idiot, uh, writing is something that you can learn, like learning to play the saxophone, mm. or learning. It's work, it's training, it's that thousand hour thing. If you just do it a lot, you get good at it. And I became good eventually, but it took a long time. It took a really long time. You're obviously passionate about writing and and really proper journalism um, and serious journalism. That's probably why you pers- you know you pursued it constantly, and you got better and better and better to to be an editor in chief for GQ because it's it's a passion for you. Well, it is, and if in my heart of hearts, if that's if there's anything that I you know if I had to relinquish everything apart from one one thing the writing is the thing I couldn't relinquish because mm. I have to keep reminding myself that having having the ability to write literally anything that I want to and have that mediated 
is incredibly powerful. And that's mm. quite obviously why social media is so important. And also, you know, obviously we, we can talk for days about how social media is manipulated and is destructive as well as being an, a force for good. Yeah. So I think it is the journalism because that's um, because I think if you are an, an inquisitive person and you can develop uh, a way to write and you have a method of distribution, that's an incredibly powerful privilege frankly I, I i think you need to uh, think of it as a privilege and i don't i mean charlene surely you must think that what you're doing is is a privilege every day um you know somebody was asking me something the other day about something and i says the thing is is and for both of you you know what it's like when you write something it's such a personal moment and you're writing it's i mean it's like it's like you know the i the, the the passion for what you're writing about comes first and then you happen to just write about it that you know that's yeah. the the writing is the then the necessity to do what it is you do but uh-huh. feeling it's an emotion it's something that's in you that you feel so strongly about that you have to put it down in paper you know when when you're writing you never i i still to this day don't ever imagine that anyone's ever going to hear it I really don't. And I don't know if you feel, you guys feel that when you do the magazines and when you write, that you think, I'm just doing it at this moment in time just because this is what I love and this is how I see it and this is my vision. But still, there's a little bit of you every time that it does get to the point where someone comments on it or someone says, oh God, I love that piece or I love that song or I love whatever, where you, your heart kind of like, oh, wow, thank you. That's that's so amazing. That's, I still feel very privileged to be allowed to do what it is that I love more than anything. Karina, is it the same for you? Yes, it really is. But mine came from me getting into launching Mission and doing this media brand is is very different to how you have come to be at GQ. Mine, mine kind of came from, you know, my personal tragedy of losing my mum and my brother and I didn't want to be a stylist anymore. And I thought, well, I want to do something about giving back and something I really care about. And it's been quite, it shocked me how obsessed I am with this um, and how all-consuming it has been. It's, it's been quite scary sometimes realising that, you know, I, I work on this seven days a week, but I utterly love it. And I kind of, you have your blinkers on sometimes because I think I'm so obsessed with it. I love the content that's going in that. And but it's been very, it's been interesting. Yeah, like you said, Dylan, about your writing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop doing this. You need passion. I mean, uh, how, how extraordinary and how wonderful to feel passionate about something and have yes. the ability to turn that passion into an actuality. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, I wanted to, you talking about passions and uh, my journey and everything, it kind of leads us into the whole podcast series is called My Mission Is, and we wanted to link something philanthropic back to this. Is there any causes or charities um, or foundations or things that you're passionate about that you care about? Well, weirdly, I mean, we've done a lot of work in the past for the Prince's Trust, for the AIDS Foundation. We've done various things over the years and lots and lots and lots. But weirdly, I've just started doing some mentoring. In fact, I've got my first meeting next week. It came in a so-called a circuitous way. And then I, I was having a meeting with someone about some, something completely different. And they were talking about this. And I suddenly said, it was like I was saying it without thinking it. I said, I'd like to do that. And so I am. I'm, I'm starting um, some mentoring with some some children uh, brilliant. from a school down in Stockwell. And actually, do you know what? Just spending half an hour uh, just talking about this situation, meeting some of these kids, I feel embarrassed about how little I know. I mean, we were mm. talking about where our wow. first meeting with this mentee, 
I think that's the right word, was uh, was going to be. And we talk, you know, we were talking safe spaces, their space. I said, they can come here if they like. I mean, you know, show them around. They, you know, would they like that? And um, one of the people said, I'm sure they would love that. But this might be the first time they've ever been into the West End of London. And wow. This, and these are people in their yeah, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And, and there are lots of reasons for that. And I found that mm. very shocking. But in a short period of time, selfishly, I've, I've learned an awful lot and I find that uh, enriching, to be honest with you. But also, that's wonderful. Do you also find that with that, it's, it's you know, because sometimes we get, we in the world that we, we all live in, we are pretty spoiled, to be honest. We are pretty mm-hmm. damn spoiled. But is it not amazing, like, when you do something like that? I, I personally find it, and I'm, I'm not sure if you will, but it reminds you of how amazing the life is that you lead. You know, because Absolutely. it really teaches you that. You suddenly look back and you go, you you forget things that you actually know and stuff that you just take for granted that you do every day, whether it's this, you know, write a magazine, write a piece, what, you know, jump in a cab, go here, go there, have a meeting with this person, that person. Suddenly when you go into someone else's world and you're talking about what it is you do, the passion and the joy I find that you get back out of what it is you do is, extraordinary Mm-mm. i just think that 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 is like a really big deal um and it reminds you of what you know yeah I, well I, i'm even though i've only been doing it for five minutes i'm i'm certainly picking that up and i think i mean hopefully i will be of some benefit but who knows anyway yeah it's a great first step yeah exactly well i think we've got plenty i, I don't know about this 20 minute podcast you and i thought we do charlene because we <laughs> We if you haven't talked about the- my drug dealing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that. I'll send you my address later. <laughs> <laughs> Your guy's got mine already, Dylan. <laughs> I love it. I tell you what, I, I, it's going to be very interesting when we interview different people from different countries, let's say, and how free and easy the English are with their language. Well, just wait, <laughs> just wait till they have to try and understand my accent. That's going to be really funny. <laughs> Do you know what, Charlene? I did a um, I did the Glasgow uh, Book Festival about three years ago for one of my projects, right. and, um, uh, and I had never been before. I mean, and you're, I'm always flattered to be asked, and I'll you know I'll, I'll do most things that people ask me to do because I think well they're interested, so I should be interested. So I did this thing, and it wasn't exactly the Edinburgh Festival. I, I mean, I have to say, maybe I can, it's maybe, I can imagine maybe better now, but I mean, there was hardly anyone at my talk anyway. But at the end. Someone asked me, you know, there's, I had half a dozen questions, which was nice. That was like, you know, 50% of the people there asked a question. <laughs> and um, uh, this guy asked a question, and I couldn't understand a word he said. And of course, and, and then I asked him to repeat it. But then you, can't, you can never ask someone twice, or else you turn into the woman in Little Britain. And, um, excuse me, love, sorry, no. And you couldn't say in English, could you? And, um, oh, my and God. You'd never and get out of Glasgow alive. You'd never get out what you do is you answer another question entirely. Exactly. Go, that, that, I've made a whole career in that, Helen. What? I've made a whole career in that. Never listened to what anybody asked me. I just say whatever it is I want to say anyway and just go, yeah, 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 and then Brilliant. just rattle into whatever it is I'm thinking <laughs> in my brain. But it works. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's, so fun. yeah. it's, it's really interesting you, you ask that. Anyway, when I was writing the book and you just... Uh, exactly, yeah, and, exactly. And they go, oh, my God, they're so artistic. <laughs> <laughs> so creative they're so creative with their answers no it's because i have no idea what you just said to me 
love it. Oh, God. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dylan. It's thank been you. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. All right, guys. Well, you take both take good Our next podcast is was actually our first podcast that we did live on stage at public hotels in New York. It was incredibly engaging. It was with Fisher Stevens, who, if you haven't seen it, you have to have to see this. He's the director of award-winning climate change documentary Before the Flood. He co-produced it with Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese. And I saw this in the middle of doing issue number two, the environment issue, and we could have just done the whole issue around the movie. It was really, really educational, hard-hitting facts. Um, and if anyone doesn't believe that climate change doesn't exist, please watch Before the Flood on Netflix. Um, we also had an incredible uh, young guy called Ethan Novick. Gosh, I think he's probably 19 years old now, 20. He's discovered how to erase fossil fuels in the ozone layer. He's was made Forbes 30 under 30 in 2018. He holds 12 patterns for CO2 technologies. And it was very, very engaging and dynamic with having two generations giving insights into the fight towards the environment, protecting the environment. And it, it was a very engaging conversation. I've, I've learned a lot from it. And I hope you do too. And I hope you listen to it because honestly, it's really great. Um, there's a lot of sparks flying at some point. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it.